One of the things that has always struck me about the Buddhist tradition when we look at it over the last two and a half thousand years is its extraordinary adaptability and flexibility, its uh, skill in being able to cross over cultural frontiers, those between India and China, for example, and has managed, despite very culturally different environments and very different historical conditions, to somehow reinvent itself. And that, to me, is one of the great richnesses of the tradition. There seems to be um, an inbuilt kind of creativity that ideas that were initially um, embraced by uh, people in the Indian subcontinent were then found to be um, equally um, accessible and meaningful for people arising out of a Confucian culture or Taoist culture in, um, in China or a more animistic, shamanistic culture in Tibet. And this in itself uh, points also to uh, the fact that unlike, say, say, say Hinduism or, or Judaism, which are traditions that have not really managed to uh, be exported or gone across into other cultures, there's something about it that is not tied to a particular ethnic identity, nor is it tied to a particular um, uh, fixed view of the world. But I think that the transition that the Dharma is encountering today, when it is basically moving from a, a pre-modern uh, cultures uh, very rapidly into modern and postmodern cultures is, as I mentioned already, I think one of the greatest challenges that the tradition has ever faced. I'm not convinced uh, yet uh, that this uh, process of transition will will work. Uh, we don't know in 20, 30, 40, 50 years uh, what will come of all of this effort many of us are putting into this tradition now. Uh, we, do, we don't know the outcome. But I do have a feeling that if Buddhism is to be something that actually contributes to the mainstream of modern society, it has to uh, discard certain elements that are too tied to a view of the world, um, particularly Indian cosmology, that is, is less and less of a, um, uh, a happy fit with the kind of ways we're coming to understand human beings, how human beings evolved, how we're coming to understand the nature of mind, of consciousness and intimate relationships those uh, capabilities have with the brain. Also coming into contact with a very different kind of society, um, an egalitarian society, a liberal society, uh, a society of gender equality and so on. At every point on this um, map, we find points of, uh, of conflict, uh, points of um, struggle 
and attempts to kind of mold Buddhism um, a little bit this way, a little bit that way, to try to make it fit better. And in fact, one metaphor that one might use in this regard is, um, and this is almost invariably the case nowadays, uh, we, are, we use the metaphor of the computer and software and hardware. And I think that we might look at the different forms of Buddhism, let's say Zen Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Pure Land Buddhism, as different uh, software packages that run on an operating system uh, which is largely um, uh, the same for all and that is adequate or has been adequate up to now to running these software packages. Now, we might call this operating system uh, Buddhism 01. And this is the operating system that we find um, starting in India at the Buddha's time. It is largely uh, the operating system that comes out of the classical Indian worldview. Now, up until now, that operating system has worked perfectly well. And... um, what people now are, I think, doing is trying to write some, another software package which we might call Western Buddhism or modern Buddhism. And they try to redefine and represent Buddhism in such a terms that it seems to uh, uh, address the conditions of modernity. And to some extent, I think there have been quite some successful examples of this already. But I still feel that um, the problem perhaps does not lie in the software package itself, but rather the problem lies in the operating system. So Buddhism 01 perhaps needs to be rewritten. And although this might sound terribly arrogant, and I'm aware of such objections to my work, um, what I'm interested in doing is not writing another software package for the old operating system. I'm interested in trying to rewrite the operating system itself so that we might come up one day with something called operating system Buddhism 02. And that's, I think, at the root of some of the conversations we've had in the afternoon, and I think this will continue through the week, is that um, I'm trying to write a a system of core fundamental ideas that I'm drawing from the classical texts, and in fact I'm drawing many ideas that you're familiar with, some of which, though, many Buddhist traditions nowadays overlook like these parables we were speaking of, the elephant, the arrow, the raft, they haven't found their way into some of the Buddhist traditions we're aware of today. I never heard any of them taught in the Tibetan context or in the Zen context. And yet, curiously, uh, they're very powerful images and ones that seem to describe something very basic in the operating of the Dharma itself. So what I'm trying to do is to identify some of these key ideas and then see whether it's possible to uh, rewrite the operating system itself so they become the guiding 
um, principles on which we then uh, construct or rebuild, going back to our building metaphor, what we then call uh, Buddhism. Now, of course, I would like to consider this rewriting of the software as a, a, a much-needed upgrade. Um, others might think of it as just serious viral contamination. <laughs> that is, um, in fact, one of the first responses I got to my last book was, beware, the Dharma-ending Dharma age is nigh. But one of the difficulties I have, and perhaps many of us have, um, once we've been uh, educated or, or trained or, or we've studied in a particular traditional Buddhist school, it's actually very difficult to unlearn that. Uh, some of the basic ideas that are so uh, built in to Buddhist thought um, uh, are not so easy to discard. Um, when we we learn these things, we maybe naively think it's just a question that we uh, remember certain ideas or certain concepts, and if those ideas or concepts cease to be of value to us, then we can just discard them. But it's not as easy as that. Uh, I, I feel that in learning something like Buddhism, any kind of complex philosophy, particularly a spiritual or religious one that is something we take very much to heart, is not so easily uh, put aside. That these old habits of mind uh, remain very firmly entrenched and they become the way we uh, respond to and understand and reflect upon a Buddhist text or a Buddhist teaching. We cannot help but see them through the assumptions of Buddhism 01. Um, a good example of this is a question that was pinned up on the board yesterday, which I haven't yet dealt with. And I've had this posed to me many, many times. If there is no continu continuation after death, then the corollary must be that death would be the end of suffering. Therefore, why should I bother with practicing the Eightfold Path? Um, if, if, if there is no life after death, then from a classical Buddhism 01 point of view, then why put all of this effort into being good? Why not either just enjoy myself until I die, or if life really is as miserable as some Buddhist texts make out, why don't I just end it all? It's a perfectly uh, rational objection. But it is premised on a particular view of what traditional Buddhism uh, sees as the context for our practice. Now, I think the way to deal with this question is to begin to rethink some of the basic assumptions that are implied in it. And that is what I want to do, um, well, really, for the rest of the rest of the week, but in particular, if we are to begin this process in seriousness, we have to address what is probably um, the, the core idea that we find in all Buddhist traditions, and that is the idea of enlightenment or awakening. Um, unfortunately, 
in English, we use these two words, and this sometimes gives rise to the impression that there are two different concepts in the classical texts that aren't. Uh, there's simply this word body. Now, it, it usually um, commonly is enlightenment, but literally, etymologically, it's rooted in the in the, the Sanskrit uh, no, not sorry, not bur, bull, which means to wake up. Now, again, we're using metaphor. Um, when we say that the Buddha experienced enlightenment, then we are describing such an experience in terms of the metaphor of light. And, to be fair, that is a metaphor that we find used in the text. The Buddha does speak very often of um, having illuminated a dark place. So that is a, a legitimate metaphor, classically, but it's not the metaphor that he uses or the tradition has used to uh, describe this uh, crucial experience called bodhi, which is really compared to waking up. Now again, it's a metaphor. In other words, it's something that we all know about in the same way that we all know what light is each time we switch it on or the sun rises. Then awakening or enlightenment is a bit like that. And likewise, when we wake up each morning, um, that is the metaphor for, or that is the basis for the metaphor of awakening. So it's worth sometimes, I think, to dwell on what it's like to wake up in the morning. When we wake up, we always wake up from something. We either wake up from a deep sleep, a state of effective unconsciousness, or we wake up from a dream. And in doing so, we find ourselves um, suddenly in a public world, a world of others. When we're asleep, our experience is, 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 is entirely self-referring, assuming we're dreaming, let's say. And although we, I might have a dream about my mother, um, it's not actually saying anything about my mother's actual conditional state at that time. Um, it may say something about me. It might say something rather important about my relationship with my mother or whatever it might be. But it doesn't say anything about the little old lady in a residential care home in Shropshire. But when I wake up and I think of my mother or um, another person, then I'm in relation to other beings. I'm in relation to a, a world over which I don't have total control, where things happen to me, and I have to learn those those, those, those split-second uh, skills of responding appropriately to that world in which I find myself. We wake up from a world of, 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 of almost solipsism, self-referentiality, into a world of, uh, of others, of complexity, of diversity, of plurality, of unpredictability. We also wake up into a world um, of uh, extreme sensory richness, things that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and so forth. 
Now, I find it quite um, uh, intriguing why the Buddha chose this word bodhi. It's also worth pointing out that this term is not used in the classical Indian texts and traditions that he would have been familiar with. We don't find the word bodhi in the Upanishads, for example. The Upanishads speak primarily in terms of moksha, of liberation. The Buddha also uses that term. It's also an important one. But he introduces an idea that's actually a rather new one. The idea that what his uh, experience or his vision is based upon is something like the experience we have when we wake up from deep sleep or we wake up from a dream and find ourselves in a complex, uh, rich, uh, shifting, um, tragic, joyful world with others. So in this regard, um, the Buddha is, I think, making quite a departure from uh, the tradition of his time. As uh, scholars such as uh, Richard Gombrich and others are, uh, are, um, are saying very much at the moment, is that to understand uh, the distinctive nature of the Buddha's teaching, we do need to see it um, in, in the context of his time. And recent scholarship is, uh, is enabling us to have a much clearer picture than we did, say, 10 or 20 years ago, of the religious, philosophical, economic, social conditions that prevailed in the 5th century BC in India. And this helps us um, to recognize that what the Buddha is saying um, is being addressed to particular people with particular views. And this enables us to understand the context of awakening. And I think that's rather important. It's not, uh, the, it's not the only consideration, because otherwise we could say, well, that might have been useful in the 5th century BC, but hey, we're not in the 5th century BC India anymore. So what's it got to say to us? This, I think, is the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the point, is that what is, um, for me, always rather amazing is when I read some of these texts, maybe you have had the same experience yourself, although they come from a long, long time ago, in a different culture, in a different place, nonetheless, they speak in what sometimes seems a shockingly direct way to my condition now. In fact, people often comment on how, uh, how psychologically acute some of these uh, teachings are, uh, how practical they are uh, in terms of making a difference in our life now. And one of the great satisfactions I've had in my 40-year career as a professional Buddhist is that we even have the NHS funding research into it now in terms of the effectiveness of mindfulness as a therapeutic tool. Now, some Buddhists become rather, rather itchy about this and say, oh, this is a travesty of the tradition. It's, uh, it's watering down, it's asset stripping of venerable lineage, da 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 Tending to forget that what the Buddha was concerned with was addressing human suffering. And if mindfulness, however it is used in the NHS, does have that result, then 
I really cannot see why one could possibly object to it. So there's something, therefore, in the Dhamma which is, as the Buddha himself described, akaliko, which means timeless. In other words, it's not tied to a particular culture. And this, of course, is what enables it to go into China and Tibet and the West. But at the same time, we have to recognize that many of these ideas are not akaliko. They're not timeless, but they are features of Indian culture of the 5th century BC. So this is why it gets so tricky. Where do we draw that line? What of these teachings are somehow universal to all human beings, no matter who they are or where they are, and what of these teachings are somehow constrained or limited in some respects to um, the worldview of a particular historical place, um, in particular India. And that is very, very tricky to draw that line. Uh, I suspect most of us uh, will not have any uh, great interest in preserving the idea that Mount Sumeru is the centre of the universe and the earth is a triangle, or, or Jambudvipa, the world we live on, is a triangle in an ocean. And many, 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 many other features you find in the Pali Canon and elsewhere are clearly reflections of that ancient world. But the places where it gets uh, sticky, as we've witnessed already in our discussions, is particularly around this idea of karma and rebirth. Is that essential to Buddhism or is it just a relic of Indian society much in the same way as Mount Meru? Uh, the jury is out on that particular topic, but you all know where I stand. I feel it is very much, it is no more relevant than Mount Meru, frankly. So let's go back now to a text in which the Buddha himself um, describes his own awakening. That would seem to be a good place to start. And the text that I've chosen is from the Arya Pariyesana Sutta, uh, which is translated as the Discourse on the Noble Quest. It's number 26 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the, uh, the middle-length collection of, 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 of talks. And it's a rather unusual text because it's really the only example we have in the canon where the Buddha presents us with anything like an autobiography, a memoir, where he actually gives a sketch of what he did in order to become the Buddha and then how he started teaching. It's, it's fragmentary, um, it's rather minimalist, and it's rather frustrating if you're looking for a contemporary memoir. You, you won't get that. But you do get a sequence of passages where the Buddha um, talks about his own process. Now, I'm only going to focus here on one paragraph, which is the paragraph in which he describes um, his awakening. He doesn't even use the word awakening in this particular passage, but from context, it's clear that that's what he's talking about. So let me read it out. 
the Buddha's talking and he says, I considered this Dharma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed by the wise. But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground, this conditionality, conditioned arising. And also hard to see this ground, the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all bases, the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nibbana. Were I to teach the Dhamma and others were not to understand me, that would be tiring and vexing for me. That would be a real hassle. So this, I'm sure, is a passage many of you will have read. I've spent a lot of time uh, retranslating it. This is my own translation, so it might sound a little different to the ones you're familiar with. But it points, I think, to a number of things. Um, first of all, um, it doesn't use the words that we might expect in this regard. Um, it doesn't use the word truth, and it doesn't use any verb that um, is rooted in, in nya, to know. He doesn't say, I have come to know something true. In fact, what he describes is not some sort of illumination, some great knowledge that has burst forth into his life, which is very often the, the idea that we are, are sort of intuitively um, conditioned to think of as the enlightened saint or the enlightened mystic. They have some privileged knowledge of some deeper reality, whether you call it God or emptiness or, or whatever. But the Buddha doesn't speak in those terms. He doesn't speak of his awakening as a cognitive experience. He speaks of it instead as what nowadays we might call an existential shift, a movement, a kind of a, a, kind of a seismic uh, lurch in his experience. And the, the phrases that, uh, or the terms that he, uh, he, he, he uses in this passage um, are the terms place and ground which are in, in Pali, al-alaya and tanna. Alaya and tanna. Now, in many respects, these two words mean more or less the same. Um, and so there's a play going on between the shift in his experience from what, what he calls delighting and reveling in his alaya, which I've translated as his place, to uh, seeing this Tannam, idam tannang, this tana. Tana is rooted, uh, connected to the Sanskrit word adhisthana, which means uh, foundation or ground. And of course, in classical 
Upanishadic thought, the, the, the ground or the foundation, the Adishtana, is Brahman, or God. Now, the Buddha here is being very mischievous because I suspect, although I can't know this for sure, that he is making a uh, fairly um, pointed uh, critique of the way in which awakening, enlightenment, freedom were understood in his culture. In other words, if you go to the Upanishads, and we now know, again, from recent scholarship, that there are many passages in the Pali Canon where the Buddha is uh, very ironically and playfully um, referring to and undermining uh, certain core ideas within Vedantic or Upanishadic thought. For those of you who are not familiar with that, just very briefly, um, the the basic uh, idea in uh, the Upanishads, and these are texts that... uh, the earliest of which predate the Buddha by one or two hundred years, probably. The timing is still a little bit disputed. But the idea is that meditation um, is very much a turning inwards uh, to um, have direct experience of one's true self, one's Atman, which is identical to the, the Param Atman or Brahman, Uh, the universal, uh, impersonal, divine. We can translate it as God, but we have to be careful because it's not the Judeo-Christian God. It's an impersonal absolute. And so tapas, um, or practice, is one that requires first that you be somehow initiated or, 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 or study in the presence of a guru who instructs you with these pith teachings as to how to return to your own essential being and thereby achieve union with God. I'm not going to go any further than that. But the Buddha, you see, I think in this passage particularly, seems to be pointing to something quite different. He seems, in fact, to be turning that whole assumption on its head And when he describes what idam tanang, this ground, is, he says, ida pachayata paticha samupada. This conditionality, conditioned arising. He's pointing to, in other words, um, the structure of the phenomenal world. He's woken up to uh, the fact that this conditions that. When this is, that comes to be. And in fact, if we read one of his own, um, his own definitions, a rather pithy definition of what this paticca uh, samupada, this conditioned arising means, uh, here we find, a, again, a fairly famous passage addressed to a man called Udayin. And he says to Udayin, let be the past, Udayin, let be the future, I shall teach you the Dhamma. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. And with the cessation of this, that ceases. Now, in some ways, that's just a description of what we would call causality. 
In other words, uh, a recognition that our life uh, unfolds through time and that uh, by setting, by, by making a certain choice, performing a certain act, that is going to have a consequence. And we can observe that process of cause and effect, particularly, and this would be in the Buddhist time, in the natural world itself. And so you get a lot of references in Buddhist thought to seeds and plants and so forth and so on. And in other words, this paticca samupada, this conditioned arising, is um, uh, what goes on in the phenomenal world, the world that we see and hear and smell and taste and touch. Now the centrality of this idea um, is found again in uh, some very famous passages. Another one, uh, one who sees conditioned arising sees the Dhamma and one who sees the Dhamma sees conditioned arising. The Buddha goes so far as to equate his Dhamma, his teaching, with this um, experience he has had, which he, he describes as a very uh, uh, shocking experience in a way, um, with this uh, process of causes and effects and conditions, what we would perhaps now describe as process. The Buddha is very much one of the first process thinkers. He's not claiming his awakening to be an awakening into some tran transcendent truth, some kind of absolute reality, some uh, ultimate uh, state at all. And in fact, although Buddhism is very much uh, uh, driven, or let's say expressed, in terms of relative truth, ultimate truth, which is sometimes translated conventional truth, absolute truth. Uh, most Buddhist schools consider that distinction between the relative and the absolute to be the underpinning of all Buddhist thought. Now what's strange is that nowhere in any of the discourses in the Pali Canon, all those 6,000 pages, do these terms occur. Buddha never uses them once. And not only does he not use them, they're quite alien to his way of thinking. He doesn't divide the world up in this way. I think in many respects, the introduction of the two truths, as they're known, is one of the greatest conceptual disasters that afflicted the tradition. Now, of course, most Buddhists would disagree with that vehemently. But it seems to me to be the case. The first instance of the two truths in the Pali Canon occurs in the Melinda Panha, the questions of King Melinda that is a dialogue between a Buddhist monk and a Greek, Indo-Greek king about 300 years after the Buddha. And from then it takes off, this idea. Now, perhaps the reason the Buddha does not use that language is precisely because it fits rather well with the classical Indian understanding of there being an ultimate reality, God, Brahman, and an illusory world, Maya. In other words, that move, I suspect, was the first step in turning Buddhism into another Indian religion. Uh, it, it, was, it seemed to fit better with the Indian mindset 
and perhaps also with the human mindset, or let's say the religious mindset. We find the same in classical Christian thought, where we have the creator and the creation, the transcendent, divine, absolute reality of God, which is beyond language, beyond words, and so on, and the world that this uh, transcendent being has somehow created. This is a a deep habit of religious thinking to look at things in this way, and Buddhism slipped into that mould itself. But if we go back to the sources that I'm, I'm quoting here, we don't find that language. And when the Buddha speaks of meditation... Um, and again, particularly in the Satipatthana Sutta, which I'm, I'm sure we've been referring to already, um, what is striking in this context is um, how he uh, turns meditation into a very uh, close um, observation of the phenomenal world. He doesn't start his his practice, his, his teaching on meditation by saying, you know, turn your mind inwards to its own inner nature. But rather, he says, a monk, and I'm quoting now from the Satipatthana Sutta, a monk gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut sits down, having folded his legs crosswise and established mindfulness, ever mindful he breathes in, ever mindful he breathes out. And breathing in long, he understands, I breathe in long. And breathing out long, he understands, I breathe out long. I suspect this would have been quite surprising uh, for many of his contemporaries, that uh, his understanding of meditation concerned paying attention to the transient, fluid, uh, passing show of the world, rather than seeking to access something that was either behind the veil of appearances or below it somewhere, but rather to concentrate one's attention on what is actually happening in the moment here and now through your senses. And then we have this famous passage that's repeated in many parts of the canon where the Buddha says, a monk is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, when flexing and extending his limbs, when wearing his robes and carrying his bowl, when eating, drinking and tasting, when defecating and urinating, when walking, sitting, standing, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. In other words, uh, uh, just a long list of utterly mundane, everyday activities. So here we have a teacher coming along and saying, meditate on taking a shit. It's basically what he's saying. He doesn't put it quite in that gross language, but that's what he's saying. Now that, I think, must have been very shocking. It would be very shocking if I went into a pulpit of a Christian church and said this is the practice of the Dharma, be very attentive to every drop of urine that ex ex expelled from your body 
Now, because it appears in a classical Buddhist text, um, we don't necessarily notice its shock effect. We often sort of grant it a kind of religious authority and, and, and fail to really get the shock aspect of it. It's like when we read these Zen dialogues. And I think, again, for me, the, 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 the Zen koan, or the primary dialogues you find in the Tang period in China, have the same kind of effect. Uh, you know, monks beating the student over the head with a stick and shouting at them and turning their attention to the very immediate. Again, we have Yun Men, who's one of my favourites. Um, he's the one who said an appropriate statement. But he also said when another monk asked him, what is the highest teaching of Buddhism? Uh, His answer was, cake. (laughs) 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 But it's it's the same shift, you see. We're looking for some higher truth, some transcendent mystical revelation, and we're pointed back to what might have been a piece of cake on the teacher's desk? Or why did Bodhidharma come from the West? The cypress tree in the courtyard is the answer. Stop asking these silly metaphysical questions. Pay attention to that tree. This is very, very close to the sort of approach we have here. So when the Buddha describes his awakening as an awakening to this conditionality, conditioned arising, and then he spells out his practice of meditation as a systematic noticing and attending to our phenomenal experience. And we start with the body, remember. He doesn't start with the mind. He says, pay attention to your breath. Pay attention to the sensations in your body. Then, when you've grounded yourself in your physical experience... Notice your feelings, and then your mind states. And then open up your attention to the totality of your uh, here and now phenomenal experience that is by nature changing, unsatisfactory in some senses, impersonal, not me, not mine. That's where the attention is turned. And so we have... Uh, a movement away from looking for deeper truths behind surface appearance and a complete um, focus and concern with sensory, ordinary, everyday experience itself, but with a difference. And the difference lies in the fact that we're now attending to that from some other kind of perspective. And this is what the Buddha calls the the perspective of one's ground. People love their place, he says, and they delight and revel in their place. And it is hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground. What does he mean by place? Um, In some translations, the, the word is translated as worldliness. Uh, that's Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, which to me suggests a kind of monastic suspicion of the world, worldliness. But the word itself, alaya, 
is in fact a word we've all used many times um, when each time we talk about those mountains at the top of India. They're called the Himalaya. Him means snow. Alia means place or basis of the snow. Himalaya, as we mispronounce it. Himalaya, the place of the snow. So what is it then about place? Um, Again, curiously, uh, the Buddhist tradition doesn't actually offer us much explanation of what these particular terms mean. In fact, I've often found that passages that I find interesting and even even rather central, are passages that tradition has often ignored. Which again, it is telling us something. It's cherry-picking. Because most, uh, if you look in the Pali commentaries and so on, you'll find very little, if anything, that teases this particular passage apart. Other passages are regarded as central, and they are endlessly reiterated, commented upon, and so forth. But others are ignored. And so, in a way, in this rewriting of the the operating system, it's a question of identifying passages that seem to speak uh, to our condition, or at least to my condition, and and rethinking them as central rather than peripheral elements of the overall philosophy. Place. Again, think of the Buddha's own story. Here was a person who had renounced his place or his home. Again, we have this classical expression, uh, to go forth from home to homelessness. Um, Home, uh, the the Buddha says, home is a place that is covered with dust. A life on the road is open wide. There's... And again, we can take that both literally in that many young men and women at the Buddha's time did, for the first time in Indian history, leave en masse their place, their identity as a a farmer or a merchant or whatever it might be, a Brahmin, and go forth. We still use this word today. The going forth becomes another way of talking about becoming a monk or a nun is how it's usually described. But I think at a deeper level, it points to how um, we can make a move away from our fixed sense of our our role, our identity, our social position, our title, our social status, our identification with a particular country or city or town, and begin to ask as it were, what, you know, who are we, really? Beings who are thrown into this world at birth, to be thrown out again at death. It's, it's conventionally um, uh, felt that by having some identity as this or that or the other is, gives us a security, gives us a role, gives us a position, gives us a place in this highly... Um, unpredictable and unreliable world. We secure ourselves by identifying with a place, whether a physical place or a social position, or it might be a political identity. I'm a conservative, I'm a liberal, I'm a whatever. 
Or it could be also we establish a sense of place by belonging to a religion. I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Christian, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Jew. And this is such a, uh, such a basic feature of our human life um, that we often fail to perhaps notice how it can be, um, on the one hand, it gives us a sense of, of being someone, which I think is unavoidable and necessary and important. Um, but at the same time, it also can serve as a kind of constriction. It can serve as something that encloses us in a kind of ego identity uh, that, as its uh, consequence, prevents us from noticing our ground. This is the point the Buddha seems to be making. The awakening, therefore, seems to uh, uh, be what happened when uh, he, he really let go of that sense of being Siddhartha Gautama from Kapalavatu, the son of Suddhodana, etc., etc., and opened up to his existential condition as a human being like everyone else. And again, we have this beautiful legend of his whole quest beginning with his leaving the palace although literally there was no palace, but anyway, leaving the palace and encountering for the first time, supposedly, a sick person, an old person, a corpse. This is moving very clearly from his place in Kapalavastu to his ground as a human being. So it's an existential shift, a waking up to the fact of this is the situation I'm in. And as one does that, um, one begins to move from, it's really, I think, a movement of, of, of priority. So that rather being exclusively attached and concerned with one's place, one begins to pay more and more attention to this common ground we share with all that lives, which the Buddha calls Ida Pachayata Paticha Samupada. This conditionality, conditionality or, or causality or whatever, uh, that is uh, constituted of the relationships between specific things. Uh, it's striking how many times the word this appears in this passage. Idam Tanang, this ground. Ida pachayata. Ida means this. Ida pachayata. This conditionality. So it's an. Whereas, and again, let's make another slight reference back to the Upanishads. You're probably aware of that famous passage in the Brijaranaka Upanishad, where the teaching is to recognize neti, neti, not this, not this that the yogin disentangles him or herself from identification with the world um, by recognizing that I am not this, I am not that, I'm not this body, I'm not this mind, I'm not this thought. And in so doing, somehow withdrawing from that identification. And here we have the Buddha, in a sense, saying the very opposite. Instead of not this, not this, he's saying this, this, 
this. Urinating, defecating, holding your robe, wearing your, holding your bowl, wearing your robe. This, this. That's where this awakening is taking place. But we have to also, of course, recognize that um, this is not just some, some intellectual discovery. It's not that he notices this one day. Oh, that's interesting. Because he speaks of this tanang, this ground, in a twofold way. It refers on the one hand to the unfolding conditional world of specific events that's happening all around us and within us all the time. And it's also referring to this ground, the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of bases, the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nibbana. That is also called idam tana, this ground. And this, of course, refers to his um, rather transformed subjective relationship to this phenomenal world, that his encounter with the phenomenal world, with the changing, the dukkha, the anatta world, is one that is apprehended from a place in which greed and hatred and confusion are no longer defining his inner experience. Now remember, nibbana, nirvana, uh, simply means, and we'll come back to this later, it simply means the, the, the quenching or the blowing out or the extinguishing of greed and hatred and delusion. And it doesn't mean that uh, once you have that experience, these things don't happen again anymore. But it's referring to those moments in life, and one imagines that for the Buddha this would have been perhaps a very uh, total inner transformation. One likes to believe that, although we can't obviously have direct access to his own mind states. But nonetheless, um, he's, he's recognizing that this ground he discovers has both a dimension within himself of uh, the stopping or the being free from certain compulsive and instinctive drives, particularly greed, hatred, delusion, which are presumably linked to what um, drives us to establish an identity in a place. I want to be like this. I want to be famous. I want to be uh, rich. I want to win the next election. And I don't want these guys to have power and I don't want them to take my house away. That kind of you know, survival mechanism uh, activity. So when, when that kind of um, uh, instinctive behavior begins to fade away, the stilling of formations, he describes it, then we become uh, conscious of the world in a way that is not determined or driven by getting what I want, getting rid of what I don't like, and if I'm not involved in that struggle, then the other option is being bored, which I think is what moha or confusion means in an affective sense, boredom. So much of our lives are driven by, 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 by desire, 
uh, fear, hatred, and boredom. And this is what secures us in our place. It makes us feel safe in a superficial way, but the problem is it also renders our life very flat, opaque, dull, listless, lifeless. And I feel that in some ways, Paticca Samupada, this rather complicated bit of Buddhist jargon language, would, could perhaps be translated into English simply as life. You wake up to life itself rather than being endlessly preoccupied with our, with, with our status and our identity and our whole ego structure of being me. And again, what goes on when you meditate? What goes on in your wandering thoughts, assuming you still have any? I suspect it's basically the me story. It's the Stephen story. And Stephen did this, and Stephen's going to do that, and Stephen's such a great guy, or Stephen's such a jerk. Whatever particular sort of mind frame I'm in at that time. And that's in a way, that the problem with that for the Buddha um, is that it actually blinds us. Uh, it, 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 it blocks our ability to notice the fact that we're alive, that the world is unfolding and changing and uh, manifesting and disappearing, and that there's something enormously uh, rich about that. So... Uh, the Buddha then goes on to describe his experience. He says, um, why should I now reveal what I reached with difficulty? This is not an easy task. I mean, he's saying this again and again. This Dharma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to. Now, we might say, well, wait a minute, causality. What, what's the big deal? That's kind of easy. When this is, that arises. Yeah, I've got it. What's next? Clearly, he's not talking about simply being able to uh, intellectually grasp that idea. I mean, everybody knows that chickens come from eggs. Rice seeds produce rice plants. The relationship the Buddha seems to have uh, entered into with the phenomenal world is a deep intuitive uh, embrace and recognition of the fundamentally contingent nature of life. Contingent is a word I prefer over conditional. Contingent in English usage has the sense almost of arbitrary. Uh, contingent. We're not, it, it, it's unpredictable. It's unsure. But it's something that depends or is contingent on other factors than itself. We make contingency plans. In other words, if something goes wrong that we can't foresee, this is what we'll do. And I think contingency is, for me, the, 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 the closest term in English to this idea of paticca samupada, even though I usually translate it now as conditioned arising. Anyway, back to this verse. Um, those who are died... D-Y-E-D, by attachment covered by a mass of darkness, will not see what goes against the stream. Subtle, deep, hard to see and fine. So here we have this 
wonderful expression, pati sotagami, goes against the stream. What the Buddha has woken up to is therefore somehow deeply counterintuitive. It's not what we expect. It's not what he expected. And he recognizes that it's going to be very difficult to get this idea across. And that's where we're going to stop. So tomorrow we'll continue um, from here seeing how the Buddha then converts the principle of contingency or conditioned arising into a practice. And that will bring us to the Four Noble Truths. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.